As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm delighted to be joined now by the Big Bull, JJ Bull. Hello, Joe. Hello, Big Bull. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Although it is raining outside and I went outside to buy electricity this morning. That's the thing I did. Good to see. Yeah. Do you have electricity on a card in your home? <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, oh, wow. I just haven't bothered to change it, and then there was a pandemic, <laughs> and I ran out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've lived somewhere with that before. It's really yeah. annoying when it runs out. Extremely, it sure is. particularly if it's late at night. That's the worst kind of electricity thing during a pandemic. Anyway, Alex Stewart is also here, and Alex, trust. Uh, can I trust that your electricity is not paid for by card? Wait, that doesn't work. Oh, God. Just, hello? Hi. How are you? you? Great. I went out and bought a coffee. Okay. Yes. Well, electricity, coffee, consumer's choice. It's a modern world. One of those days. Uh, We are today uh, talking about uh, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, Leicester, a little mention for Ryan Bertrand at the end, and... uh, uh, a memory of Aberdeen. That was fun. Um, some of you, or you know, a number of you even, might be thinking, oh no, my favourite member of the TIFO podcast team, Seb Stafford-Bloor, isn't there today. Well, to those two or three of you, I say don't worry, because uh, Seb is actually here. Um, and uh, later on in the podcast, I'm sure something that will uh, please many more than two or three people uh, will be that Clive Tilsley is also here speaking to Seb about his new book, uh, new booker, uh, not for me, Clive. Stories from the voice of football. That was very exciting. So thanks to Seb and Clive for that later on. Uh, if you like other kinds of stories from football, the ones that are of the highest quality and uh, for the uh, the 
in the that are the best ones, then if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you can regale yourselves. Uh, re, 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 regale? Regale? Is that the word? Mm, no. no. I think Alex will can... You can... No, regale is like tell. Tell, isn't with it? With enthusiasm. You can... What is the word to say you can... You can Read. You can re... <laughs> you can read them there <laughs> so if you visit theathletic.com forward slash tifo you can read all sorts of great stories and articles about football written by people including uh, david ornstein oliver Kay, daniel taylor amy lawrence other fantastic James Pierce of Liverpool fame, you know, all these sorts of characters out there. And I'm delighted to tell you that at the moment, for the time being, currently at this time, you can get a 30 day free trial to try it out. Uh, so when you do that, if you don't like it, pfft, just quit it. Just quit it afterwards. It's fine. Um, I mean, obviously, stay because you will like it. But the point point stands that you could quit it if you wanted to uh, at no cost to you. So visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to read all those things. Uh, right, for now then, uh, I will leave you in the... Well, no, i tell you what, I've, I've kind of always wanted to say this. It won't be true right now, but I am going to say for later in the podcast that I'm very pleased to leave you in the cool, cool hands and the warm embrace of Clive Tilsley. <laughs> Chelsea nil one Arsenal. Bit of a strange game, not quite what I'd expected. Only goal of the game came from Jorginho's very odd back pass, which was that was fun to watch. Um, and off that, at times it felt quite one-sided with Arsenal just absorbing a lot of Chelsea's pressure. JJ, you described this game as feeling like the 89th minute from about half an hour in. Yeah, it wasn't. It was a weird game to watch. At one point, I looked up and I was convinced it would be like 90 minutes plus two, and it was. Yeah. 71 I think so I'd also been sitting there for ages thinking it was almost done and the game felt like that tempo was really slow Chelsea's tempo was so slow um needs to be much faster and the way both teams were set up to kind of cancel each other out so it was just like a an anti-football game where nothing really happened for most of it and see like the way Arsenal played I mean it started off quite exciting-ish uh they were pressing high they kind of kept that up for most of it but from the start Arsenal the first 15 minutes, they had 52% of possession. And as soon as they scored, that dropped to 28% for the next 15 minutes. And after that, the game ended with them having 26.9%. <laughs> but Chelsea had all the ball, did very little with it. Because they, I don't know, Tuchel spoke after the game about how um, he uh, maybe changed too many players. He didn't realise, he did an interview post, uh, pre-match and he didn't realise it was seven changes. He's like, oh, that's quite a lot, actually. He seemed to be like, oh, no. Uh, and yeah, as we know from football manager, when you change that many players, it doesn't always go to plan. No. We mentioned that they had an awful lot of the ball. They certainly did, but it felt a bit like they kept trying to score the same kind of goal, Alex. Yeah, they they have these two kind of types of move where either one of the wing-backs charges down the line and then passes it back inside slightly to one of these tens that's pushing forward who then tries to get to the byline. So it sort of creates this like... Uh, 
almost as sort of zigzag pattern um, or they'll play through the lines but again it's about trying to get one of these quick attacking front three players to the byline for a pullback and as JJ said if you don't have the correct momentum and energy in those forward runs or if Arsenal defend quite deep which they did with with the wing backs tucking back it becomes very very difficult to do this and so Chelsea did, you know, they tried to switch the ball across um, the penalty area so that they could mount the same kind of attack from the other side, which sort of worked a little bit. As a final resort, they'd cross in, but but prior to Giroud coming on, they didn't really have somebody that was an aerial presence. And obviously, Arsenal had three centre-backs back there, and Leno was, was goalkeeping quite proactively, so that didn't work either. And it just felt like... You know, Arsenal's tactics to certainly to nullify Chelsea's attack worked really quite well. It, it wasn't like they created a huge amount themselves, but they they figured out how to stop Chelsea from scoring, and Chelsea didn't adapt and move away from trying to score the same type of goal, uh, and that's probably why they didn't. Yeah, another thing that was interesting about this game was, um, as as Alex says, that Chelsea, you know. Trying to score a lot of the same type of goal, they were they were coming quite close. Uh, or certainly, I mean, early on in the game, I think before Arsenal's goal, uh, Havertz had uh, an opportunity which you know one on one with the keeper probably should have been put in. I wouldn't have said that they had any other huge chances during the game, but Billy Gilmore was someone who was helping them tick the ball around fairly quickly, and um, Tuchel decided to take him off uh, and replace him with uh, another player who I've forgotten I've forgotten who came on JJ, but that seemed like a bit of a strange substitution because he was. Bit of a um, uh, you know, bit of a glimmer in midfield. Yeah, I think the problem was from the you see it from the start is that Gilmore and Jorginho are very similar players, so they're kind of doing the same role in there. And it was it's Kante that Gilmore came in to replace in that game, and obviously gives you something completely different. Lots of energy, um, buzzes around the entire pitch, helps especially with winning the ball back, but can also drive with the ball. And Gilmore's more of a like he'll get the ball, look up, and instantly know where three passing options are and ping it to them. Uh, I, mean, I love watching him play but at half time when things aren't going well and the momentum's too slow he needs someone who's going to maybe make it more dynamic so I think he put his Hudson-Odoi came on wasn't it for him Yeah, yeah. Uh, at yeah. half time uh, and then he put Hudson-Odoi out to where Mount was and Mount came into the midfield so someone you've got someone who's a bit more suddenly you have someone who's a bit more dynamic in the midfield who will can carry the ball or, yeah. or ping it forward because Arsenal as soon as they bypassed Arsenal's first line of press Arsenal just retreated into a block and just sat deep like it was very, um, if it were Rafa Benitez, it would be described as a tactical masterclass. And uh, <laughs> I mean, but it worked, right? Because it kind of slowed them down. But I don't think it was like. Could it, they maybe if, have taken Jorginho off instead then? Who, who you know, probably, contributed yeah, but then to you, the only goal of the game and didn't, didn't seem to have a very good game. Yeah, that's really the natural thing. But then you think Jorginho's got the experience and therefore should mm. be better. Do you know, it's that kind of thing where you've got a player who's got that experience, maybe add some. He's quite vocal on the pitch. I haven't. I don't know how loud Gilmore is, but you'd think he'd be a bit quieter because he's younger. So you put Jorginho on, which makes sense because he's older, and that tends to be how people think of footballers. <laughs> you would think and, that, but then you look at Scott McTominay, and it's all confused. I, I would have taken. I don't know. They should basically need Canty to play every single game. Is what they need. Yeah. They also they didn't they didn't have a, a reserve midfielder on the bench. So any change to that double pivot had to be involving Mason Mount dropping back. Yeah. And straight away, 
not only do you lose something of the movement in the midfield from not having Kante or Kovacic in there, but you then also lose the the penetrating runs in behind that that Mount provides because Mount's a, a fabulous all round player anyway. Um, I mean, I I thought Gilmore did really well. I think there's he he has this technical thing where he's passing the ball. He kind of stabs it forwards slightly, <laughs> um, and occasionally. Mean, yeah he stabs it with the outside of his foot. So he gets a little bit of curve round. Um, and there's, there was, yeah, he kicks it in a funny way. <laughs> it's kind of what I'm technically trying to say. <laughs> um, but it does mean that the ball zips. And there are a couple of instances where he took it under pressure and was able to turn very, very quickly. And like JJ says, just seems to have this preternatural awareness of where other players are. Um, and, you know, he's not going to, carve defences open on a regular basis he's not going to provide the same dynamism as Kante but he does what he does exceptionally well I think he looks like a really good player did you say preternatural yeah what does that mean Uh, kind of instinctive operating at a level above conscious thought like natural yeah but it's it's more than that it's a kind (laughs) of like a gifted I'll take you. I'll take your word for it. Okay. Um, so, can we say then that perhaps this wasn't uh, it wasn't a mistake to make that substitution? It just didn't work out. Well, I think I think the problem was was just the depth of midfielders on on Chelsea's bench because you you can understand why he did it. I think JJ's right. You leave Jorginho on because he is more experienced. Um, he's one of the sort of leader dictator types on the pitch, mm. um, and it was more the fact that man had to drop back than anything necessarily to do with um, the the balance of that midfield. Okay. Well, Alex, here's another interesting substitution from Tuchel. Um, Havertz off for for Giroud. I mean, that this seems like a good one. It, it was nice to see Giroud play. You, um, I think it's easy to forget when you're not watching him how many additional options or sort of alternative options he can provide. And also, I love you know, I th- sort of think of him as being a big head because when he comes on they're always trying to hit it at his head for obvious reasons. I always forget how uh Giroud's all about the fine angles as well. Like the goal the, the, sorry the goal the the shot that hit the bar mm. um after uh Zuma's header had hit the bar as well. That angle to, to do that was absolutely incredible. I forgot he's all, all sort of like triangles for feet, which is nice. Um but also it's, you know it's this uh, substitution with specific reference to the fact that it was a decision not to use Werner here. And that felt a bit like an admission that maybe he isn't really built for, for this type of situation, Alex. Yeah, he's not. Um, you know, Werner operates best when there's lots of space to run in behind, whether that's to run in behind on, on the, the touchline side of a centre-back to, to create room for a pullback, uh, or it's running in behind between the centre-backs to try and get on the end of opportunities himself. And, and as JJ said, because Arsenal were sitting so deep in a low block and and stopping up the the central areas with those three quite big center backs um you know holding and, and Gabriel particularly good in the air it, it there was never going to be space for Werner to run in behind Chelsea had so much of the ball that they weren't able to draw Arsenal forwards um if anything Arsenal were retreating further and further back because Chelsea had so much possession um and and that was exactly the right thing for Arsenal to do can I ask a question then about uh, uh about Werner I think I mean obviously they spent 
quite a lot, quite a lot of money on him. Can you think of another player that would be, you know, considered, I suppose, based on their transfer fee or based on their wages, to be one of the, you know, top earners, one of the best players at the, the, the team, that isn't right to start a game like this and isn't right to be substituted on in a game like this, and also, by extension, probably isn't right for a number of games because Chelsea are a top team in the league. It, it stands to reason that many. Uh, you know, teams lower down the table are going to be defensive and and sit back against them. What 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 is he right for then? <laughs> what is the point of Timo Werner um, to score six fewer goals than his xG suggests? Is kind of a point. I, look, I think um, Arsenal were actually more defensive and more cagey than quite a lot of teams are against Chelsea, um, which is slightly surprising, but I guess after that opening goal they could afford to be like that. Um, I think he probably would have made sense to start the game, actually, um, and probably didn't on the basis of just being rested or giving rotation to other players, something like that. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, I was going to say that. He's played the game every three or four days uh, yeah. for the last like two weeks or something like that. And it's, it's something Tuchel even said is that he thinks he might have had his mind too much in the FA Cup final, which is on Saturday in another two days. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, I, I would have probably been minded to start someone like Giroud or Tammy Abraham in this game ahead of Havertz or to have Havertz as one of the tens mm. um, and, and, and straight away go with that, you know, the more of a focal point. You're exactly right with Giroud. He's very good in the air, but... He is also uh, excellent in terms of his link-up play. His touch on the ground is really, really strong. It would have brought those players in um, to, you know, the, the the attacking runs would have had someone to work off that that would have pinned against those centre backs. And he's a bit underrated, isn't he? Giroud, yeah, certainly, yeah, yeah I would yeah. say so. Um, and and it may be that Tuchel was was caught out by the fact that Arteta matched the formation didn't have time to react to that or something I, I don't know but the the change when it happened made sense and I, I don't think you can infer an enormous amount from Werner not coming on let's talk about Arsenal then the winners of the game um Miguel Delaney tweeted a good tweet uh, there was more to this tweet which made it better but I've cut half it out because it's no longer relevant he said Arsenal have only lost one game this season when they've gone ahead which was one of the first games against Liverpool uh, so JJ, I know on on uh, Monday ne- of next week uh, we're releasing a video where you've done a sort of a big uh, deep analysis on Arteta's time at Arsenal and how he's working with the team. Uh, this sort of result, and not I guess not so much the result, but the the performance and the way they won those three points, it made me feel like well maybe there's maybe there is some hope for Arteta. That's an unnecessarily negative <laughs> starting point maybe, <laughs> but that's what happened in my head. I'm sure everyone hopes there's hope for him. That would be nice if he's not just doomed forever. It's like he's... Uh, I, don't, I can't think of any movies. Uh, anyway, so they sort of matched up with Chelsea that we were talking about. Um, and I th- I don't know if Chelsea would have anticipated that this is what they would have done because they've gone back to that 4-2-3-1, which seems to be what Teta wants to, to play now. Um, and we talk about this a lot in the video that's going to come out on Monday. Uh, instead here, like Alex has said, they largely matched up to Chelsea and they even sort of pressed in the same way that Chelsea do. And Arteta, after the game, is weirdly kind of bullish about everything. Like, yeah, you see, this is our identity. Our, this is how we play. It's ingrained in us. But they've not been very good at pressing for most of the season. <laughs> and they've also lost a lot of games. And they didn't really have any shots on goal in this game, <laughs> which has been part of their problem for most of it. Like, they had five shots on target, and two of those were... Like, Kieran Tierney had one from about 400 yards, and Bayern had one from outside the box was straight at the keeper. 
that's you know that's a good percentage of their shots i can't do the the maths of that but it's like 40 percent or something of their their shots were from the, the wing backs and i think there are positives to it like clearly this squad isn't exactly what he wants it to be and uh, i think there's like, playing party and um el Nenny worked in midfield here and you had they almost played like a, di- a diamond almost in the midfield so party would sit deeper and then he would push up to join in a high press with the two inside forwards so you'd have like the the goal that i mean i want to give it to Jorginho because really it should go to him that really passes should. it really should count as his goal but that's all from arsenal's press they go they're really aggressive with it they were pushing there was a point where um pablo mari who played it like the center center back uh was pressing on the right wing to to try and push chelsea back in so the chelsea would go from goalkeeper to center back out to the wing back um, the wing, the opposition wing back Tierney would push right up on James and that would force the ball backwards they'd switch it across and then suddenly Arsenal were pushed up right on them there and uh, Elneny pushes someone and then that goes backwards to Jorginho and then Smith Rowe comes across to press him and that's what forces the, the error so that part's worked but then like I said before then they just kind of retreat and, and block the game out and cancel it like Chelsea are way ahead in XG so it's one of those games where Arsenal won it, but you can't you can't rely on the way they've played there to to win games in the season. You see, so for Arteta to come out and be like, "Yeah, this is how we play. This is us now," it's not. I, I don't think it's it's great. I feel like I've been really negative about Mikel Arteta for no reason. Like I've got a thing against him. <laughs> He's going to think no, I don't, don't like him. Don't get inside your own head. I mean, you have written here. Maybe that feeling is the reason why you haven't uh, said your bit about it being the territory of another manager. Oh, wait, it is a bit like Steve Bruce, though. This is what Steve Bruce's Newcastle do. 5-4-1, sit off, mm. 30% of possession, grab a goal, either on the counter-attack or by Jorginho passing into his own net, and then you defend it. Like, it's, a way, it's a way to do it. It's a standard tactic, but you can't really rely on it for an entire season. And Arsenal are better... When they tried all these different things last season, they went to the 3-4-3, they started winning games because it's really hard to play against. Sort of like Chelsea. It's, if Chelsea don't play with the right tempo and intensity and momentum then they're really boring to watch and it slows right down and uh they'll be i think we'll see next season i'll be horribly wrong with this we'll see next season that chelsea <laughs> will go a couple of games where they get beaten or they don't score and chukul seems like the worst person to be amongst when you've just lost <laughs> like seems so intense You're like oh no and uh, then yeah. the players maybe start falling out with them and, uh, and then it'll go down from there because at the moment they're riding confidence and they're really hard to to break down, but they're also managing to get goals. Well, you know, everything wilts and dies, doesn't it? Uh, speaking of, Seb wrote this for us as a little note. He hopped on the uh, the podcast plan last night, and he said, this might have been uh, as well as I've seen Emil Smith-Rowe play in this kind of fixture. Patient, smart on the ball, aggressive with it at the right moments. What does he need around him to succeed in this Arsenal team? As in, you know how Seb says, as in. What stroke who does he need to be supported by Alex? He didn't write Alex, I did. Oh, okay. That's a shame. I didn't want JJ gonna, to feel that Seb had specifically asked you that. But, uh, yeah, just no, he's just going to text him my response rather than give mm-hmm. it here. Um, <laughs> right. yeah. I, think, I think he's... So we were having a conversation about, about players who feel like Arsenal players and who don't. Um, and, and a certain person on this podcast said that Kieran Tierney didn't feel like an Arsenal player because he was aggressive and committed and all of these things. 
Um, and I feel like Smith Rowe falls into that category a little bit. Um, he's. It was Seb that said that, wasn't it? A hundred percent. It was Seb. Yeah, yes, it was definitely absolutely. Seb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't take that away. <laughs> no. Um, I, when I say he's aggressive, I don't mean that he kicks people. I mean that there is a there is a directness to the way that Smithrow carries the ball, or sometimes actually makes the yeah. runs into space out wide. That doesn't feel like it's a lot drive. of what's happening around him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This. Um, it, so it sometimes I, looks like he's playing for a, in a different game for a different team. Do you know? What I mean? This is not a, necessarily a criticism. No, of that's Arsenal, exactly it's just a what it clashes is. the way that yeah, you know, the play styles. Yeah. And and I think you, you know you have alongside him in, in in this particular formation you had Erdegaard who is you know Erdegaard presses reasonably well but he's more he's a bit more sedate on the ball he's a bit more measured with Smithrow he's got you know his socks are a little bit lower and he's kind of got that slightly weird running style that makes him look like he's lurching forwards and I don't know he so okay to answer the question um I think his best position in a system needs to be nailed down he feels like a 10 who spends a lot of time drifting into wide areas which is partly because Arteta wants to overload those areas and that does make sense but it it kind of vacates the central area which is weird when Smithrow is also very good at attacking the ball in the box and and coming in you know he scored a couple of good goals recently from late runs where he gets on the end of stuff that fantastic finish at the weekend he was also I mean you would say in this game he was the person who arrived to provide Aubameyang the option uh, in the right 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 space at the right time right exactly so is he is he a kind of wide playmaker who drifts out and does stuff is he almost more like a second striker I, I think I think that almost needs to be nailed down before you work out what his supporting cast is what if he's a goalkeeper? You know, it could be he could be anything. Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think they'd. I mean, who would you put in goal over if Burnt Leno got injured? Who would you put in goal from that outfield lot? You wouldn't put Smith Rowe in there. Well, I'm just thinking, was it Kyle Walker who had that great game? In, ended Kyle the game Walker in has goal? played in goal. Harry Kane's played in goal quite successfully as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's, no, there's almost nothing better in a in a Tierney, top level Tierney game of football. Tierney would be your goalkeeper, some, wouldn't you? That's Tierney exactly what I was going to say. Goalkeeper. He'd yeah. be great. He <laughs> wouldn't <laughs> care charging into someone no. 1v1. He, he would, would take fly the man out. on the ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, every single cross oh. that comes in, he's like launching himself towards it, even if he misses by miles. Mm. That, um, that's some of the best entertainment you can get in football, I would oh, say. It's, he it's doesn't really get better delightful. than that. No, no. And also, they, they always seem to be too small for the goalkeeper's shirts. Yeah, you, you notice how big the, the goals are, don't you? Yeah, you know, they, they look small because of all the they've got all these massive giants in them in there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you know, goals are massive in real life. Like, they really goals are. are huge. Yeah, yeah. but I, this is I, we talked about. Well, I talked about this more than I should have done on the last podcast. Lon's goalkeeper is about five foot eleven, and when, when you watch them. It, it's so apparent how much smaller he is than most goalkeepers. And you forget that most goalkeepers now are like six foot four minimum. Well, it's you know, something strange. else uh, is along this note. Um, you know how, uh, particularly if you spend a lot of time with someone, if you're in a relationship with someone, you sort of don't recognize the difference in height or the difference in size between you until you see yourself next to that person in a mirror and you think, holy Jesus, I'm a monster <laughs> versus this. <laughs> Versus this relatively tall woman who actually looks like a child next to me. When I'm at the football, 
I look down at the pitch and you see <clears throat> the size differences. You know, let's say I, I'd gone to see um, the last the last game I went to go and see actually was was uh, Norwich at Old Trafford, and uh, I remember uh, seeing uh, Paul Pogba playing next to another. Uh, Man United player and really recognizing that height difference mm. and then looking at how tall Paul Pogba is and then realizing I'm quite a lot taller than Paul Pogba and <laughs> I'm obviously larger and much more rotund than he is and thinking if I was on the pitch next to him I'd look like a giant among all of these players yeah. they all look like adults to me I all I always think they're older than me or I look at Bruno Fernandes and I think well he's a real He's a real man, isn't he? He's a real adult. I could go to him and ask for mortgage advice or something. He's he's like four years younger than me, and he's like a child stood next to me. It's all in the head, is what I'm saying. But um, back to what you were saying, Alex, about Emil yeah. Smith Rowe. If Arsenal are going to rebuild over the next couple of seasons, their their crucial players for this are people like Smith Rowe, Bakaya Saka, uh, Kieran Tierney, probably Partey. Partly because Partey's good, partly because they spent a lot of money on him. Um, you know, go back to the fundamentals of how do you get the best out of that kind of core of players uh, and then work forwards from that. So I think that's the sort of thing that should be then informing transfer policy. You, there's, there's no point in saying, oh, they need this type of midfielder or that type of striker without a clear sense of the tactical identity going forwards. And I, I do feel like Arteta still hasn't quite bottomed that out yet. I totally agree. On this point, on the same game, it feels a lot like he went back to basics. You know, when managers come in, they're like, well, yeah. what we did, what we did, we went back to basics. Uh, it's like he sort of fired himself <laughs> and then hired himself again. It's the new <laughs> Arteta. He I wants back the to new basics. manager bounce, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's done. Well, yes, well done, uh, Mikel Arteta and Arsenal, of course. Uh, and Kieran Tierney, whatever team you're playing for, well done to you as well. Uh, we will be back after this uh, short break to discuss uh, Manchester United and uh, Leicester City. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, uh, Manchester United won to Leicester City. Um, worth noting again that we are recording this, of course, and uh, before the Liverpool game and releasing it afterwards. So we're going to keep this conversation uh, a bit broader uh, uh, for obvious reasons. And we will begin uh, by talking about Leicester City. Nice way to bounce back, you might say, from a 4-2 defeat against Newcastle. Uh, also feels quite important, uh, retrospectively, after, after uh, Chelsea's drop points against Arsenal. Lots of good performances from the team, but particularly Alex from Ndidi and Tielemans. I made a note here in... Uh, my, sorry, Tielemans, I need to call him. Uh, I made a note here in, in, my, in my handwritten notes where I said... Someone should pay a billion pounds for Ndidi. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. 
Yeah, um, I probably not a billion pounds. The they are what I like about these two, um, and also if you throw James Madison in the mix when he's fit and make it a three, is that they are very very good individual players, but when they are working together, they are also extremely complementary. So the different skill sets that they have kind of overlap. So indeed, he can play a decent progressive pass. Tielemans can press well and make the odd interception and tackle. So it's not like one only does one job and the other only does another job. There is there is overlap, but they they just work extremely well in harness together. So Tielemans is is your passer, but he also gets forwards. He shoots. And Didi makes tackles, interceptions. I mean, it's it's kind of obvious what they do, and it's just it's just worth pointing out. I think that that they're both still pretty young. They're both still relatively inexperienced by Premier League standards, um, and they're just exceptional players. I mean, in terms of the balance of a midfield, you struggle to think of a side that has a better kind of midfield two three than Leicester, apart from. Probably Manchester City. I, I think they're that good. They are really good. Also, uh, JJ, do you feel like this will be the last time that Manchester United's midfield will start as Mata, Matic and Van der Beek? I really want Van der Beek to be good because I, I liked watching him at Ajax. But I think there's a difference between how he wants to play and how the rest of the Man United players want to play. Like mm. he's a different, he plays to a different drum. Is he another he one? He's playing on uh, Kieran Tierney's team. No, I think he needs to play for Ajax or teams yeah. that play the slightly slower, more passy pass kind of game. Because uh, mm. in Man United want to be really quick, especially in transition, but play more direct passes, line breaking passes, and he wants to pass it around everyone. There was a little, there's a little bit of this game where it's like a triangle between him. I can't remember who it was, but the ball was just going like forwards, straight back to Van der Beek, sideways, <laughs> back to Van der Beek, forwards, back to Van der Beek. And like they have achieved nothing. I understand the idea of moving like a small pass <laughs> to then gradually move a defender like out to press or to like open a bit of space. But it's genuinely just like here's the ball, here's the ball, here's the ball, and it uh, didn't didn't quite work. Yeah, the midfield uh, is not great. I hate to talk about players in in this way, but since we're at the end of the season, you know the thoughts of worst transfers uh, and other con- other such concepts come to mind, uh, and I'm sure there are others out there, but. F- Purely based on the money, uh, I suppose the expectation, and those are two things which always come along with a, a Manchester United signing, of course, um, but also the performances and the, the amount of time that Van der Beek has actually had to try and show anything. It feels like a, retrospectively, feels like a really weird player to spend quite a lot of money on. I can't remember if it was 30 or 40 million or something, but it was, it was quite a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was a bit that much money, but then that's, he was available, so it kind of made sense to get it get him in. It's, it's sort of like when you, I don't know, you go shopping and then you're like, oh, there's, there's a butternut squash there. I should get that because it's on offer. It's available and I'll take it home, but I don't yeah. ever eat those, but it's there. <laughs> you know, I, had when you, <laughs> I remember when I was younger. Three extra pounds to save £2.50. Exactly. Yeah. Like, well, I might, yeah. I might have a butternut squash in the next month or two and you don't. No one does. I mean, but some also, to extend your analogy, I love a squash. It's yeah. like also having gone out and spent an absolute fuck ton on broccoli that you really, really like. And that's <laughs> the other problem is that he, you know, they they have Bruno Fernandes there and, and he's in that position 
everything is geared around how he plays. I think Van der Beek plays best as a second striker, pushing up, making those little runs inside. United just aren't geared towards that. Put him in a midfield double pivot, it doesn't work for exactly the reasons that JJ was saying. So it's it's not just that he doesn't fit in, it's that they've already got the ideal kind of person. Mm. You, you were talking about this in another context, weren't you, Joe? Like, how do you buy... How do you buy somebody who comes in to be the backup for somebody who's so good and undroppable? Yeah, and also like uh, I think you know described as the old Duracell bunny, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't ever not play. So that's also yeah. a bit of a bit it's of a, a problem. It's a very underrated quality in in the very best players is their durability and their availability. If you look at people yeah. like Lewandowski, like they don't miss games. Bruno Fernandez barely misses a game. It's the Ronaldo and Messi thing, isn't it? Yeah, as exactly. Opposed to someone like Neymar. Yeah. Um, Okay, I mean, I, the one other thing I would like to say about uh, Donny van der Beek as well, just ha- having watched him play a number of times now, is he, he does one of two things to me. The first is exactly what JJ just described, kind of recycling the ball around, and I, I can see how he's a, a good good space investigator. You know, I can understand uh, why why he looks like an Ajax player. The other thing, though, is uh, when he is playing as a second striker, or when he's put on, I suppose this is often because he's substituted on late in games where they're still chasing a goal. Uh, and he becomes a sort of fourth member of the three-person front line. He's always making those runs off the shoulder, uh, it tried, trying to get in behind when the ball never comes, you know. Uh, but he is this strange thing when I watch him do that very specific thing. It almost looks like he's hiding <laughs> in that front line. He, like he, he looks like he's in a position which could be great. And if an incredible ball was played over the top, he might be in all, all you know all the space in the world right in front of the goal to score that. It looks like a very proactive and very positive thing to do. Another way of looking at it is that the ball's never going to reach him there. <laughs> and actually, it's quite a clever place to hide from the ball or hide from the play. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that he's actually doing that. Uh, I'm just saying that it that it sometimes looks like that to me because I always think, you know, oh, there's a, there's a nice there's a nice run. There's a there's a nice bit of space. Never never reaches him. Never comes to him in those in those places. Um, anyway, strange play. Maybe we'll talk about him more uh, another time. But for now, let's return to Leicester. Um, this is just a weird kind of gripe of mine. I don't know if anybody else shared shared it, but uh, on the whistle, at least one Leicester player felt his knees to celebrate, and I thought it's a bit much, isn't it? In my mind, I think. If you're going to be a big team, Leicester, and you can be, not saying you can't, I'm not a gatekeeper, I'm just saying, if you're going to be a big team, you've got to act like those sorts of things are no big deal. If you fall to your knees to celebrate a uh, you know, a 2-1 win over Man United, a team who cannot not lose at home, uh, it just feels a bit, a bit try-hard. Is that really unfair of me? The danger is that they're going to fall away and miss out on Champions League football like they did last season. So... To, for them to have come in, they just lost to Newcastle which, and drew with Southampton, which they should not have done. Uh, and so this is obviously them correcting it, and they've just beaten a good team, even though it was like Man United B or C. You know, it's not the real first team that they've just beaten. They've still beaten them, and that's corrected the the form and make sure they're not going to fall apart. And also, when that final whistle went and they all went down, so it was like choreographed, but it was like the end of a video game. Like you can almost hear them go like, "Yeah, all right." Like on their <laughs> knee and like fist like pound in the air. I loved that. Victor. Victor. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Maybe I am being unfair. I don't know. I just I just thought I think it was it, 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 
there was you know added to, adding to the feeling was the fact that it was a it, well it wasn't by the end of the game but it started as a sort of Man United B team or whatever it just felt a little bit I don't know I don't like it anyway I'm wrong uh, let's talk more about Leicester now JJ because uh, they meet Chelsea of course uh, in the FA Cup final uh, this weekend uh, you know firstly we should say for Leicester what a season Cup final and firmly third now. Uh, that is a real marker of continued success right there. That's a, you know, good job. Well done. Uh, secondly, how do you rate the chances in the cup final? I can't quite work, like, work out what I think about it. I think because Leicester keep changing the way they play at the moment. We know they've got the same sort of principles of play. They like to keep the ball. They like to move it around. Um, they build from back to front. They like to press in certain ways. But... I mean, this is a 4-4-2 that Rodgers played. It became largely a three at certain points as Castagna came round. And it made sense for this game. But you'd think against Chelsea, they'll probably match them and play their back three. But they've played that with a forward two. And the teams that seem to have done well against Chelsea match them along the front line. So they play you know, a central forward and then two either side, the front three, is what I'm trying to say. So maybe they'll change it and have Ayinacho playing off Vardy and maybe Perez alongside him in that 3-4-3 and that might give them a way to... I think we'll try and do is largely cancel the game like Arsenal did, actually. Kind of like keep them quiet because Chelsea... If you can subdue Chelsea and take the pace out of it and take the energy out of it, then there's every chance that they can score a goal and then defend from there. But... Yeah, it. I think that Chelsea have lost... Um, that game and how annoyed Tuchel looked at the final whistle. I think they'll be really fired up and like revved up and ready to go. And that just might be. I, they're probably a better team under Tuchel. Uh, so, um, so no, I don't know. <laughs> I would like a scoreline prediction, please. Uh, I would think it could be something like a probably a one nil Chelsea. Okay, and Alex, I would like one from you also. I mean, can I just be really tedious and agree with JJ? I, I think it'll be a one-goal margin of victory, 1-0 or 2-1 to Chelsea. Okay, okay, okay. There we go. Let's talk about Manchester United then. It's a, uh, understandably altered starting eleven. Um, of course, United played three games in, 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 in five days. Lots of football there. Uh, but that did mean that we got to see some new and some very, very old players for the first time in a while. Uh, so, JJ... Uh, Ahmad, go. I like Ahmad. Uh, he's could be the solution to their right wing troubles if he comes on. He's quite small, is one thing I've noticed. Uh, that's <laughs> the depth of my analysis. He's quite a small lad. <laughs> also, one thing I really like about football, like when you look at things with statistics, like he's got this many assists. So Diablo got an assist in this game by being on the wing, having the ball, passing it inside to Greenwood, who then beat five players <laughs> to score. On his right foot, running across goal. Like there's five players he's basically beaten with that move, and Diallo's like, "Yeah, I did that. Yeah, there we go." He gets the assist. It looks good in his statistics. There was a goal actually. I think last season. I think, I think Pope got the assist because he gave it to Lingard, who then ran past about five players and scored from 25 yards, and that kind of put a mockery into it. I basically changed what your question was. Ama Diallo. No, no problem. Seems good, and I think he's going to turn into a decent player. Like, yeah, he is. He looks strong as well. Strong as a bull. Well, he bodied like Thomas out of the way before he controlled the ball to pass to yeah. Greenwood for his excellent assist. So, yeah, that's the thing. He got a good, he must have good core strength, which is very important. Gordon Strachan talked to me about this once in an interview. <laughs> said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was really going hard on how important core strength was and that you basically need to have... 
I suppose just get Scotland players to do loads of burpees or something like that, and that's how we'll get better. <laughs> do you know every time uh, someone mentions Gordon Strachan, I I think back fondly, a bit of nostalgia at uh, the very beginnings of uh, of uh, the Illustrated game, which was a uh, Illustrated football blog that uh, myself and my sister Alice and Phil, who's a Tifo illustrator, started. One of the things that we did, we you know posted articles and little drawings on on, on online. Uh, but one of the series was a series of illustrations of Gordon Strachan, but in different movie roles. <laughs> I don't know why we did it or why we picked Gordon Strachan. There's no reasoning. But I think we somewhere, I'll have to try and dig them out, there's about 30 illustrations of Gordon Strachan. Uh, one is like dressed up as Indiana Jones. Another one is, you know, Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker or something like that. And I'll tell you what, he looked great in every role. He's a... Uh, He's um. What do they say about an actor who has a uh, uh, range? <laughs> he's got a, he's got a lot of range. JJ. Was he wearing the Darth Vader helmet in it? Because then you could just basically have drawn Darth Vader. You see. Rather I think than... I might have made that one up. Maybe we yeah. didn't do Darth Vader. We did. <laughs> so maybe like... you know, it's, we did like thirty of them. I can't remember any. What's it? I don't even know characters in the film. They were funny though. Anyway. I like it. This uh, story hasn't really quite gone the way I expected it to. So very quickly moving on, Alex. It feels like years. Years since we've seen Juan Mata, Nemanja Matic, and Van der Beek play. They all did in the three in midfield. It didn't really work. I already asked JJ about this, but I'm interested in your thoughts on the future of that midfield because it, it's been undeniably successful, really, with the sort of workmanlike duo of Fred and McTominay in there this season. But you still feel, when you put it up against the biggest teams or the very best midfields, uh, that it's, it's still lacking something. It's not it's not ideal, is it, even if it works for 90% of scenarios? No, it's not, because I think that, that there are two problems that United face. The first is that if your attacking movements uh, are very, very much based on individual skill, if one or more of those players has an off day, which obviously is going to happen to everyone, um, then it can break down quite substantially. Um, the other issue is that if you're up against the very, very best teams, they have very, very good defenders, which is kind of obvious, but it does mean that it's easier for them to negate those players. So you need to have uh, midfielders who can do something a little bit different, progressive passes, breaking the lines, carrying the ball through one or two tackles, that sort of stuff. And I think that the the workmanlike McFred pivot, or whatever it's called... Sure. Uh, you know, that that's a solid base for a lot of games, but you don't get progressive passing from it. Um, in fact, McTominay is, is kind of almost excessively bad at shutting down good passing options at times. Um, is it going to be Pogba plus another one? Is it going to be, if Pogba leaves, a rebuilding of that? I mean, they're kind of the other issue that United have, obviously, that we've talked about before, is they've nailed themselves to a 4 2 3 1 because of the importance of Fernandez. So I think it's tricky. I mean, you know, obviously if they went and spent one billion pounds on Ndidi, that would improve their midfield and would allow probably Pogba to, to play in a pivot with a greater degree of solidity. But I just feel like they need to have a bit more passing in there, maybe go to a midfield three, encourage Fernandes to play a little bit deeper, something like that. I would also say I thought Matic actually played really well in this game. Um, and and had a lot of good defensive positioning, some decent passing. He's just too slow and old to do that. Matic of like five, six years ago would, would have been great for it. 
JJ, what do you think about the future of that midfield? I keep thinking about Gordon Strachan as Darth Vader and how you would tell it's him and that he'd be about five foot five and how funny that would be in the Star Wars movies if Darth Vader were five foot five. I just it would be funny the tiny little Darth Vader. I, 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 do you know what? I was disappointed with that story, so I was scrolling all the way back <laughs> through this block while Alex was talking to find some. We've got him here as Jack Bauer, Doctor Who, Rambo, Begbie, very frightening Begbie from Train Spotting, one of the big hobbits, one of the big fat singing hobbits from the film The Hobbit. He looks great in everyone. So much less anyway. threatening. He would he would look as if he's five foot five. He's smaller than everyone he's talking to. <laughs> but he's as. <laughs> I bumped into Gordon Strachan once in the, the Brooks Shopping Centre in Winchester. And when I say bumped into him, I mean I literally walked into him. And even though he's quite a bit smaller than me, I was genuinely terrified. Because the, <laughs> the look that he gave me was one of such abject hatred and contempt. Well, it's not <laughs> often that you find yourself in, in common people's areas, is it? I mean, generally you speaking... about me have, or Gordon Strachan? No, you. you oh, right, yeah. You, you people have your own sort of facilities, don't you? Or your own... What do they call them? Ideally. But, servants? Butlers or something? Yeah. It's, it was yeah. probably unusual for... Maybe you think of everyone. All the poor people look at you that way. No, there was something special about the way Gordon looked at me. It was like he was going to gut me. <laughs> But in answer to your question, I think uh, Alex pretty much summed up <laughs> the midfield. Uh, I, I I think they like Pogba playing out in the left at the moment. Swing's quite good, but um, I also think indeed he would be exactly the kind of player that they they need. And uh, whenever I've played as Man United and football manager, one of the first things I've done is look for that sort of player. And it's normally indeed he pops up or like Thomas Delaney at Dortmund, that sort of player that you get in as a, a holder. I think Pogba's actually done really quite well on the left. And I, I think he adds yeah. something quite interesting there, particularly given that Shaw is so good at pushing forwards and overlapping that you kind of think that, you know, if 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 United just went and bought Ndidi and Tillemans, kept Pogba on the left, Bruno Fernandes on the right, Ahmad through the middle and stuck Greenwood up front, they'd probably win the league. Easy. Well, there we go. Okay, that's the Man United's problem solved. Uh, one last thing before before we hand over to Seb uh, is, uh, Alex, you, you mentioned here that uh, Ryan Bertrand announced that he was leaving Southampton. Yes, I'm very sad about this. Um, Bertrand's been really, really good for us. Um, it also means we've got no left-backs because <laughs> we don't even have a reserve left-back. Um, it was just interesting, and this is not ordinarily the kind of thing that, that I would notice, but... The, he released a four-page statement on Instagram and he thanked the Liebherrs, he thanked uh, Martin Simmons and Matt Crocker. He didn't thank Ralph Hasenhutl. That's I, I find that a bit odd. Um, I, I'm this not is suggesting... Alex's gossip, gossip corner, scandal column. <laughs> this the is way. literally the least Alex thing that I've ever said or done <laughs> on this podcast. So I was looking at Instagram and here's some gossip about a footballer. Um... But yeah, it just, I don't know. It's odd. And I think it's a slightly, it's potentially a slightly worrying situation at Southampton in that the thinness of the squad has contributed to a lot of the problems. Bertrand is a kind of a, a tactical leader of that team. He's experienced. And I just wonder if, if you can infer that there's some kind of breakdown that's happened there, which is not necessarily auguring well for next season. Um, because it's been very up and down this season. And as a Southampton fan, that concerns me. JJ, what's the biggest face burn you've ever seen that's real? You know? 
I, that what didn't quite work how a I thought. A burn. I don't, yeah. What I meant, what I was trying to do there was go, oh, now that we've heard about that, that burn, which wasn't really a burn or maybe was, what about another burn? But uh, again, I am still looking at pictures of Gordon Strachan, so I, I'm a, <laughs> so messed that one up a little bit in my head. I've got an example for you, if you want one. Oh, I'd love one. Uh, Aberdeen sold a player called Sam Cosgrove for £2 million to Birmingham, which might prove to be mm-hmm. the management's greatest achievement, uh, selling him for £2 million. Um, but when he left and joined Birmingham, his one of his first uh, interviews was that he tried to... Uh, slightly imply that the training was uh, of the standard it should be at his new place. He's like, I'm surprised by how intense it was after having spent two years at Aberdeen where clearly they don't do an awful lot. Speaking of Aberdeen, we should mention this. On the 11th of May, 38 years ago, it's the anniversary Aberdeen um, beat Real Madrid 2-1 in the Cup Winners' Cup final. That really happened. Now that's some anniversary, isn't it? Yeah. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. That's uh, all from today's football, uh, but we'll be handing over now uh, to a very excited Seb Stafford-Bloor to talk to his guest, Clive Tilsley. And uh, the first question that Seb asked, of course, a very Seb-like question, is it true that a newspaper journalist took Clive to task on the pronunciation of Hammers Rodriguez? Here we go with Seb and Clive. It became a story, and... um... You might even be able to guess the publication that felt as if I'd somehow offended the man himself, who had actually asked to be known as James. Um, We've had a number of instances, I say we, because these are the kind of sad things that commentators talk about, how we're going to pronounce him. And we do believe it or not, and you would struggle to believe it when you hear some of the divergence of pronunciations. But uh, the kind of old guard, those of us, the old school, have been together for a while. We did try to kind of establish and agree on a pronunciation. I was reluctant to change my recognised pronunciation of James Rodriguez from the Champions League. But I folded. I, um, I'm not quite as uh, so stubborn that if, uh, you know, if the popular accepted way of pronouncing a player's name becomes something else, that I'll go with it. But he's Rodriguez rather than James. This actually, it brings me to kind of a, something that I, the, the, the book left me thinking about, because you grew up wanting to be a broadcaster, a commentator. And I, I think there was a part in, uh, there was a time in my life when I, I probably saw it as an ideal job too. You know, I kind of, when, when I was listening to Football Italia, I sort of envied, you know, Peter Brackley's sunny afternoons in Genoa or, or Turin. Um, another thing that you, you talk a lot about is the forces that afflict modern day commentators and the things that they're subjected to as a result of you know, social media or criticism or, you know, we've just spoken about kind of um, uh, nitpicking in, um, in newspapers. Do you think young Clive would still want to be a commentator now, knowing what he does about the industry and what, what he's going to be exposed to? Oh, I, I, I love the job as much today as, as ever before. 
I mean, there were frustrations when I started commentating in the late 1930s or whatever it was, and they are, they're probably different frustrations today. But I think it, as you read the book, one thing that I accept, acknowledge and applaud is that the provision and consumption of, of media changes by the day. And if you are retrograde enough to want to draw a line at some point and say, no, that's enough. I'm going to carry on broadcasting, writing, communicating, being a politician, being a, I don't know, a, a, an archbishop or whatever on these terms, you know, circa 1995. And that's it. That's as far into the future as I'm prepared to go. Then you don't belong in media because um, your audience is changing by the day and, and, our job, without making it sound too grand or precious, is to serve that audience. You know, you've read the book, so you're aware that Reg Guttridge was a very important mentor to me. And probably the biggest message he ever gave me was identify your audience and commentate to them. So as that audience changes, so the commentator has to change. But um, I hope that whilst there's an element of nostalgia about the book in so much that there are a lot of tales from the distant past, I don't wallow in the past at all. I, I'm, as a human being, happier today than I have been at any other stage in my life, happily married, ha happy family, uh, very proud of, of the children that we've produced. I've been called them children, the massive. Um, I, I enjoy my profession and my life as, as much as ever. Um, I'm of an age where nature starts to take things away from you. Um, sadly, um, and, and I've got to, I've got to come to terms with that, but, uh, <laughs> um, I'm still very, very happy. And so now there isn't a, there isn't an ounce of cynicism about my job and the importance of it. There, there, I've plenty of cynicism about some of the monsters, such as social media that we create and authenticate. We'll do a little bit more nostalgia, just because I do like to wallow in the past. Um, uh, one of the, the charming themes in the book is the kind of the, the sense of community you describe between commentator and the players and coaches being commentated upon. Like you, you talk about spending time with players. Um, there's one very memorable incident um, in the book where you, one of your friends is in a, you know, a perilous coaching situation and you have to ask him the post-match comments. Do you think that sort of texture to the game, that um, that that element to it, is that lost forever now, Clive? I, 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 there's no such thing as forever, but um, yeah, I've actually said in the book that the biggest single change that I've seen during the course of those four thousand years that I've been doing this job <laughs> is the distance that's grown between football and its media, and because of that, between football and its public, because. It's very easy to define our role. We are the messengers. We are, um, our, I sometimes talk about Pheidippides running back from, from Marathon to tell the people of Athens who won the war. It, in a sense, he was the first journalist. He wasn't a very good journalist because he dropped dead on the spot after saying we won and they had to try and work out <laughs> who we were. Um, but he was the first journalist and we are given that seat on the halfway line, even now when nobody's allowed in the stadium essentially to, to report on what we are seeing because there are so many people who are interested in the context and the outcome of the game that we're watching. So 
for us to lose contact with that game in the way that we have, and I think the fault has probably been equally shared for media departments and media officers now to be strategically placed in, in the roots of anybody who's tried to get some meaningful answers from within the game um, is part of the gap that's grown between football and its public. And it, it may sound a little quaint when I say that you're never going to see your local team centre-back in Sainsbury's anymore. But once upon a time, you did. And it's not that long ago. But quite apart from the wealth of some players, even when you come down the leagues, such is the scrutiny, the almost... I don't like to call it an invasion of privacy because I don't know how much privacy any of us are really entitled to, particularly when we have some kind of public persona. But in this selfie age where people feel as if they know you to the point they'll stride up to you and start a conversation with a total stranger just because they've heard or seen you and feel as if they have some kind of relationship with you, the temptation comes just to... Um, pull up the drawbridge and and stay in your own little bubble seems to be this year's word. And that's dangerous. We cannot lose contact with the people, not only that pay my wages, your wages, the players' wages, ultimately through whatever, even if it's through a television subscription, but the people who care passionately about football matches. And again, I, I'm relating the book to something that really blew me away about six months ago in the worst of the pandemic. And um, I was kind of sit down to see a seven o'clock news every night. And sometimes it's Sky News. And um, during, um, say, the worst of the pandemic, they read out little obituaries of, of you know, tr tragic cases of people who died from coronavirus. And usually it was father of three, um, factory worker, big Lake Orient fan. And wow, is that, is that somebody's tombstone, their, their name, their age, their family, their profession, and their bloody football team? And that's how important this game is to people, to communities. And it is a communal game, and we're, we're kind of watching it and talking about it now in our own little bubbles through Zoom or whatever it is. And it's missing that community badly. But if you ever need a, a kind of reality check as to how important it is to be a communicator and how fortunate we are to be a communicator in this business, you think of the number of people that regularly come together just on a Saturday afternoon, um, you know, pre-coronavirus, and just think of a political party or a religious group could, could mobilise that number of people to pay to come and be a part of your rally every weekend. That is football. It's immense. And uh, as I say, as communicators within the game, there's a huge responsibility to get it right. I want to lean in a little bit to the idea of what it means to get it right, because importance is, is obviously um, unending in football, but so um, seemingly is sensitivity. You touch a little bit on this in the Glenn Hoddle chapter, where you talk about sort of how you've got this kind of broadcasters as fans element creeping into the game. And it's it's one of my bugbears. It's, it's a slight contradiction because I also hate the accusation of bias that commentators get tagged with, as if, you know, someone isn't quite enthusiastic enough about Manchester City scoring a goal, then it represents some sort of deep-rooted agenda. It, it just drives me crazy, that, that sort of level of stupidity. 
But there is an element where it feels as if television companies have worked out that a lot of football fans want a slant on their coverage or they've worked out that it, it, it's kind of a it's a, a clever tactic to tweak fans by kind of allowing their generally co-commentators or pundits to kind of to, to show their colours. Is that something that you see as well or is that just in my head? No, uh, it's happening. You've got to remember that some of the most successful men in all of football decided a few weeks ago that their idea of essentially a non-competitive league would gain traction throughout football, that everybody would think they were doing this a great favour and would be excited about the prospects of a European Super League. So people in positions of authority in football, be they club owners, administrators, or even broadcast chiefs, do get it wrong. And that's essentially because that gap has grown between them and the people they're serving. And, and when Reg Guttridge used to implore me to commentate to White Van Man, don't commentate to the football manager, he wasn't being in any way condescending at all to somebody who drove a white van for a living. Quite the opposite. He was brought up and grew up among people like that. And I'm not like that I'm, because I've been taken in to, I, I was once upon a time, I'm from a kind of lower middle class stroke working class uh, family, you know, I'm from Bury. But through my, the educational opportunities that I got, I was able to pursue a career in a job that I look forward to every single day. That immediately puts me in a minority in this country. And if I don't recognize that, and if I don't remain in contact with people for whom every day is a little bit more difficult than my every day, then um, I'm I'm not doing the job anymore. And maybe this idea that it'll be fun to have Cara versus Gary. And by the way, as we've seen in the last few weeks, great champions of football. I mean, yes, very good absolutely. broadcasters, guys who take yeah. their jobs as seriously now as they did when they were right back and centre back for England or Liverpool or Manchester. And I love that about them both. And I, I would consider them both friends. But as I put in the book, the, and the only but about Cara, it really is the only but about Cara. Mo Salah, you little dancer, I'm not sure that that's, that's the right thing for you in your position to be saying at that moment. It would be the only quibble that I would have. And I could be wrong. It could be populist and great. And there's nothing wrong with populist, nothing wrong with tabloid, nothing wrong um, with soap operas, nothing wrong with things that people want to consume in, in great, great numbers. Um, but yeah, you're asking me for my personal take on it as you're giving your personal take. And that's kind of a remark too far for me. Something I'll clarify there because I, I, I really like Jamie Carragher's work and I, I love Gary Neville's work. And in my opinion, the fault for that moment doesn't lie with the pundit because that is a genuine expression of, of how that person feels in the moment. I think that where the line might exist is um, in, I think it was the last European Championship, there was a co-commentator working on a Home Nations game. Um, home Nations sounds very old-fashioned now, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and it got to the point where um, the Home Nation was clearly going to be eliminated. There was a second goal in the game. And the co-commentator very audibly started to sulk. <laughs> so that... <laughs> Everything he said was kind of coated in this sort of despair, this despondency. And I just think, I think that's maybe where the line is, where where it affects the quality of the broadcast, possibly. Yeah, I think 
um, going back to um, one of the planks of Reg's teaching, identify your audience and commentate to them. And, and I do allude, well, I more than allude to this, this in the book. I describe that uh, commentary that I did alongside Ron Atkinson of the England-Scotland game where we got to half time and he'd been calling England we all the way through a game which was being broadcast in Scotland too. And he made the point <laughs> as he slammed his microphone down, am I saying that we're any good? I'm saying, no, you're saying we're crap, but you've got to call us England. He said, no, everybody in Scotland knows I'm English. They know I want to win the game. We, I want England to win the game, but I'm being objective. I'm calling them great and us crap. And I think as long as there is an objectivity about it, rather than that kind of crowing triumphalism. Uh, it, it's probably easier in defeat um, than it is in victory. And uh, I, it, it was that, as I say, that, that kind of jubilation, which just sat a little uneasy. And I think it's probably more relevant in club football, the tribalism of club football, even though we're a very diverse nation. And, you know, there will probably be this summer... I don't know how many people there are um, of Polish origin in the UK now, but I guess a million or so, I don't know, maybe more, who will, you know, that every Poland game will mean more to them than anything else. And that's cool. And, and ITV and BBC will cover those games and cover them objectively. But when it's an England game or when it's a Scotland game or when it's a Wales game this, this summer, then identifying your audience is identifying millions and millions of people who've got a real emotional investment in the outcome of this game. And that's when I think, I, I wouldn't go out of my way to say we, but if the occasional we or they slips in, I don't think you are personally, and of course, judgment of what is abusive today has changed. Uh, but I don't think that would be a, abusive to the uh, Croatians who happen to be watching. If, if Sam Matafai's, you know, if England are winning the first game well, or they win it in the in the last minute, um, yeah, I I don't think a little a, a little bit of joy in the voice is is uncalled for. Is the European Championship going to be quite strange for you this time around? Well, I'm I'm working for ITV, um, and I've got a really good but in, portfolio in not the traditional of, of role games. that you, you did before. Absolutely not. And and what's what it, in a sense made last June's decision a little more difficult for me to accept was that I had my rotor of games for last summer. Yeah. Uh, so I knew which games I was about to cover until uh, this terrible virus struck. And I mean, I've talked about that moment in the book, but it, it, it was a huge disappointment to me. It came as a shock to me, which didn't help. Um, I was told by two people who I regard as friends and of whom I have still a huge respect for, for their editorial judgment. I was told by Zoom rather than in, in person because that was how things were uh, last summer. And it took me a little while to get over it, um, but a little while, a couple of weeks. And then um, I, I put everything in perspective and, you know, I, I write about this in terms of dealing with social media abuse, which you mentioned before, it is much easier to deal with social media abuse in my position with the security of a, a loving relationship and a loving family and a, you know, a decent level of economic security uh, and a certain fulfillment in my life, both personally and professionally, than it would be if I was, you know, much younger and alone or, or um, 
uh, you know, being hit upon in other areas of my life. So the fact that I, I am where I am, um, and feel lucky to, to be where I am, then yeah, the occasional body blow and it was upsetting. Um, I can ride that. I, I can ride that and stay on my feet. And I am now genuinely looking forward to the summer because I'll be working with people that I haven't worked with for a while. Um, I've got a lot of really, really close friends in ITV sport, a lot of people whose work I rate very, very highly indeed. I'm absolutely delighted to say that the rotor has come out for the first few games and I'm principally tied together at the waist, traveling around the European mainland with one Alistair McCoist, which is just about <laughs> just about the dream job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so and I've, you know, I've got Germany versus France. I've got oh. Spain games, Dutch games. I mean, I'm not... I'm not commentating on North Macedonia versus Neptune every day, uh, and I am working. Um, and I'm going to continue to work for ITV on their FA Cup coverage, which starts quite soon. And um, the the kind of contract that's being drawn up at the moment mentions Qatar. I don't particularly want the World Cup to be in Qatar, but that's where it's going to be. So clearly they don't think that I'm about to keel over or start um, – frothing at the mouth and babbling nonsense uh, any more than I have done the rest of my career anyway. Um, it's just they decided to make a change. Um, they're entitled to do that. I respect that change. That little bit of content that I recorded on my social media channels wasn't so much in response to the decision that ITV took um, as one or two follow-up calls that I got from people saying, A, are you okay? i.e. are you ill, uh, and b, have you done something, which was the really disturbing one. Uh, is there something we're going to read about? You know, There must be a reason for this. Um, what have you been up to that you haven't told us about? So I, I recorded whatever 60 seconds of content just to say, look, I'm disappointed, but no, I'm absolutely fine. And no, I haven't done anything that um, I'm aware of that I shouldn't have done. And... I suppose the consolation now is that I know Sam and he's hugely capable, um, but he's different from me. He's, he's a, he has a different approach to commentary. And so I've been replaced by somebody different. If I'd just been replaced by a younger version of myself, then I would have found that probably a little bit more difficult to stomach and accept. But I have stomached it and I do accept it. And uh, I am really looking forward to working with people like Anna McCoy's and producer Anne Barker. I've worked with at many tournaments and commentating on the likes of France versus Germany to millions and millions of people. Well, listen, I, I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I think um, we've tried very hard not to um, not to tread on any anecdotes or spoil anything. But I, I would ask that um, that readers pay particular attention to the Pat Summerall chapter, which I love because Pat Summerall is one of my favourite broadcasters ever. And the, the, the way you capture his style is is great um and it's something i miss that kind of that tonal simple stripped down delivery um but also you deal with the kind of the the dynamics of the commentary box and your rules for co-commentators which is a really interesting thing and something i, I never actually um considered um but i am mindful of time and uh it's out this podcast is going to release on friday so the book released yesterday so uh, go out and buy it. it comes with our thorough recommendation and clive thank you so much for giving up the time to um to talk to us thank you very much indeed i've enjoyed it well, there we go. That was Clive there. Clive and Seb. Clive with his book. Not for me, Clive. Stories from the voice of football. Uh, Clive Tilsey. 
Thank you uh, to Clive for uh, participating in the podcast and, of course, to Seb for hosting such a wonderful interview section. I uh, hope you all enjoyed it today. Uh, JJ Bull, the bull man, the big bull, thank you to you. Thank you. And Alex Stewart, thanking B to you also. Do I not get a nickname? Um, <laughs> the Stew Doc? <laughs> I, I preferred it before. <laughs> the Duck Leaf? I don't know. Sh- okay. Yeah. You know, the Nettle Antidote? What, Great. Um, yeah, the okay. Anyway, meat thanks. Meat Stew? Thank you very much. You are welcome, Meat Stew. Uh, we'll be back next week I won't be back I'm leaving forever now I'm going on holiday um, so I can move house and uh, uh, so I won't be here for the next three episodes but you'll be safe in the hands of uh, JJ, Alex and Seb uh, and uh, perhaps one or two uh, little special guests along the way not that they'll be little but that they will be special uh, so Tipos, thank you as always for downloading I uh, hope you'll have a fantastic weekend And uh, for now, au revoir. The Athletic.